The Tablet Show, episode 78, with guest Aaron Gustafson. Recorded live Thursday, March 28th, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Aaron Gustafson about web standards and progressive enhancement. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're talking tablets and all that stuff. What's up, my friend? Just finished rebuilding my main development workstation with Win8 Pro. Wow. What do you think? I'm living most of the time, of course, in desktop mode because that's where all my software is. Yeah. And I'm just learning all the little bits and pieces to move around. But uh, my left-hand wing screen is the the Metro screen. So oh, cool. when I flip back and forth uh, using the Windows key, that's the screen that flips. My main screen doesn't flip. Yeah. So get get to, you know, I was dabbling for, for a while, but finally committing the main dev machine has been a big jump. So getting all those bits and pieces in place. I actually love it. There's nothing I would change about it. And I got to say, I'm still totally psyched about the geek out we just recorded on Donna Rocks. That was an amazing. Uh, it's all about thorium as an alternative nuclear fuel. And uh, it, it's very, very promising. Yeah, I'm vibrating with excitement, or maybe it's all those antihistamines I took because it's spring here. <laughs> all right, well, vibrate your way into uh, Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> well, uh, I just went looking for cool JavaScript stuff uh, today, and I found this um, blog, cunis.com, uh, but you can get to this particular article at tinyurl.com slash effects. And it's 12 insanely awesome JavaScript effects. Cool. This is from April 2010, but it's still really, really cool. Some of these are cool. And, of course, JavaScript, so you can, you know, steal it and use it, I think. Um, uh, and you, it's one of those things that you just have to go experience. So, can you describe any of them? Well, one of them has, like, a bunch of balls, like marbles falling down on the screen and then rolling around like you know as if they were regular marbles you know so that kind of thing um another one's like a spirograph another one is a, a star field where you're sort of moving through space that sort of you know that star trek thing right and then as you move the mouse you know the the trajectory of the of the stars so like you're looking to the left and they're whizzing by you you know that is pretty insanely awesome and it's just javascript it's just javascript gotta love it very cool stuff. Nice find. Yeah, I thought it would be cool to share. tinyurl.com slash effects. Richard, who's talking to us, man? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 74, and that's the one we did with Tony Kaufman, where he was talking about building games with Coco's 2DX. Yeah. And this comment is from Nicholas Lindquist, who says, the because, you know, a big part of that show with Tony was really talking about gamification in general. Yeah. And so uh, that's what uh, Nicholas was jumping on to. The best example of gamification must be this year's app, for tax declaration from the tax authorities here in Sweden. Huh. Everyone feels like it's win-lose if you will get money back or if you have to pay more. So they built in the result screen as a lottery ticket where you scratch the area with a coin to see your reward. And, of course, there's a Facebook share button. So it made boring stuff more fun. Awesome. It's a great idea. Very clever. Thanks, Nicholas. Wow. Governments with clever ways to use gamification. Who knew? Yeah. Because God knows they need it. <laughs> hey, we'll, we'll be in Sweden at the end of the year. We're going to Ordev this year. We will. We'll ask them about their tax apps. For sure. That's hilarious. Hey, Nicholas, thanks so much for your comment. A coveted tablet show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on thetabletshow.com. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Aaron Gustafson is founder of Easy Designs, a content-focused web consultancy based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's also the former group manager of the Web Standards Project and author of Adaptive Web Design, Crafting Rich Experiences with Progressive Enhancement. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Wow, the Web Standards Project. Not a, a job to be taken lightly. No, indeed. It was it was an honor, definitely, to work with the organization. I think I, I started it around 
2006, so a lot of the, the sort of heavy lifting stuff had already been done by the time I joined Lost, but um, we still got to do some great stuff, and definitely I don't think the web would be where it is today if it hadn't been for... There was a lot of controversy around yeah. it, though, at the time. Do you mind sort of digging into the history of this? Yeah, you were there during that whole HTML5 thing. Uh, what you mean with like HTML5 logo and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, and well, and just this whole are is the standards committee splitting in half? Um, yeah, I mean, there's they're still I don't know I, I think there's still some some concerns, and I think the you know the the WebWG or and the W3C are still trying to figure out how they're working together and and what the roles are. Um, and I, I think there is a lot of tension. You know, there certainly was back then, and I think there continues to be a lot of tension as to you know, what is the W3C's role? Is it, you know, an organization that should be kind of pushing the boundaries and, and moving forward like this is what we need to see on the web. So we're gonna we're gonna work on coming up with these technologies, or is it the sort of thing where the W3C should be essentially codifying the concepts that different organizations come up with, whether it's browser vendors or or what have you. Um, or, or people like Adobe, where they come up with some idea and they're like, you know, we really should have this on the web. And then they bring it forward and say, here's, here's what we think should happen. And then it becomes a topic of larger discussion. Um, so I think there's, there's still some, some feeling out. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that there would be this many years after the W3C was founded, but I think there is, there is still some, uh, some uncertainty around where the, where the different organizations should fall and, and how this all should work. Um, you know, Apple certainly thinks that, you know, they they come up with something that's going to be awesome, so they're just going to give it to W3C and they should just bless it. Um, but that, you know, that's, that's not necessarily the way things should work. And I personally, I feel like um, we, as the people who are actually on the, on the ground, in the trenches, using the web, um, building the web, that we should have a little bit more of a say in terms of, you know, where we want the web to go. It shouldn't just be you know, the W3C has an ivory tower saying, oh, this is what we should do in the future. And it shouldn't just be browser makers saying, you know, this is what we want in order to make our lives easier. Because, I mean, if you look at the, the advancements that Apple has introduced in WebKit, for instance, a lot of those have been centered around making development of software for Apple easier. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, it's scratching their itches, but, I mean, what about our itches? And, and we, as a community, as a development community, haven't traditionally had a way of kind of pushing the boundaries and, and being able to say, hey, here's what we want to see. And not only here's what we want to see, but here's here's a proof of concept of how this would work. You know, let's let's play with the syntax. Let's do these these different sorts of things. Um, and I think there are starting to be tools that that we can use to do that. Uh, that was certainly the the original thought I had behind the extender JavaScript library, which allowed you to essentially write your own CSS rules and then Build JavaScript that would read those rules out of the file sheets and allow you to do whatever you wanted. Um, that was kind of the original concept was that you could use that to essentially create your own vendor specific prefixes and experiment with things and have them actually be functional in the browser so that you can hand it to somebody and say, you know, here's, here's a concept. Here's an implementation. What do you think? You know, what, what am I missing? What does the syntax need to have? And actually be able to experiment with that stuff and then put together a fully fleshed out proposal with an actual you know, albeit JavaScript-based implementation, but an implementation to say, you know, here's how the, the spec is authored and here's how it would actually function if you got it into a browser. Sure. And it seems like Apple, Microsoft, Google, pretty much anybody building a browser does that, right? That they sort of prototype these things into a beta version of their product and then build some SAMS code. Here's why this is awesome. Right, exactly. And I mean, I I don't think that, you know, there should be the only sandbox within which these, these things, sorts of things can be created. Um, you know, certainly we're, you know, I guess we're all at, at liberty to download a copy of WebKit and add our own stuff into it, but not all mm. of us have the tech to do that. Right. Um, so, you know, finding, finding a way to be able to leverage technologies that people are, you know, at least relatively well steeped in um, and giving them the, the ability to kind of create something new using that as a, a framework to do. So it was, you must get of, proposals that run the gamut from, Wow, I never thought of that. To this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. What uh, what percentage of things just get completely tossed? In terms of the the extender library, yeah. In terms of proposals for you know extending HTML and things that you can do in the browser standards wise. 
Actually, there there really hasn't been. I mean, the way that the Accenture library was built is it's it's just a framework, kind of like jQuery. jQuery really doesn't do anything on its own. You have to build extensions to, or, or in the case of, of jQuery plugins, in order to be able to actually do something with it or write code using it. Um, Extender is very much the same way, so I don't necessarily need to be aware of what different people are doing. Okay. Um, you know, we've we've done experiments with introducing physics into CSS, like you know, give this particular element. You, know, you guys were talking about the, the marbles and stuff like that right. on the script piece. Um, you know, being able to say, you know, I want this particular element on the page to have the the physics of I don't know a um, a bowling ball, or I want this one to have the the physics of a beach ball, and being able to actually see that take effect when the page is loaded and then, you know, one of them just plummets to the ground, the other one kind of softly falls to the ground and bounces, you know, those, those sorts of things, being able to kind of experiment with, you know, what, what things could we do if we had, you know, if we had the ability to bend CSS to our will, I guess. It seems to me that like CSS3 is the, the standout of the, this whole generation of tools that they, the whole responsive web design, all this stuff hangs itself on really separating style from structure. Really exciting to me what we're capable of doing now. Yeah. And I mean, you think about the fact that, you know, for, for a long time and, and people still continue to do this to this day, but, you know, a lot of people have used things like inline style and all that sort of kind of old school techniques and, you, know, you can't do a responsive site with inline styles because you can't do media queries in your, you know, in your style attributes. So, um, you know, hopefully the the interest in this will help to, as you say, you know, move people more towards full separation of their their styles from their their script. You're helping to drive them into the pit of success. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I gotta ask one question then. The, the blog post on webstandards.org, March 1st, our work here is done. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Okay. Uh, so the, this is something that we've actually been talking a lot about within the Web Standards Project for, I would say, a couple of years now. You know, our, is our mission complete? Um, and, We've had arguments back and forth, and frankly, even I have gone back and forth some days. Like, I think there's some stuff that we definitely need to do, but I also think that there's, you know, there's a certain amount of stuff that we've done that I don't know that we can accomplish much more. So, as, as an organization, I feel like for a good portion of time, we have, um, we've been preaching to the choir. You know, we're, we're we've been preaching to the converted and, yeah, I think that's part of why we made the move several years ago towards projects like Interact, which was, you know, about improving web education around standards, um, so that we produce, you know, the next generation of, of web technologists are going to be more standards aware. So that was, you know, definitely trying to reach a, a contingency that we had not traditionally reached through just plain advocacy. Um it was also what spurred my interest in small business outreach. So we have a, a beta site that we launched um, sort of quietly in the fall um, that's at biz.webstandards.org. And the idea of that was to actually provide a resource for small business owners to be able to um, have a set of interview questions that they could use when hiring either an individual or an agency to work on the web for them um, that would help them to get a sense of whether that agency or individual was actually going to do good by them in terms of the, the quality of the work they were going to produce, whether they were up on the latest and greatest technologies, what what sort of what pitfalls to look for or or what indicators to look for in terms of things that, that probably indicate they don't know what they're doing. And so the idea with that was to provide a resource to educate small businesses, which, you know, Frankly, do the majority of the the web related hiring on the world in the world because we're, it's not all Googles and and Microsofts and Yahoos and such, um, but it's you know tons and tons, hundreds of thousands of small businesses that hire you know web designers and developers. Um, so if we could empower them to ask the right questions and to to try and get towards having better websites built on their behalf, we make the web better overall, but we also get our message kind of in a roundabout way to the designers and developers that we haven't been reaching traditionally as an advocacy organization. So if you're a designer or developer and you're still using tables or you're still building things like it's, you know, 1999 or 2000, 
um, and you're not keeping up, if your clients start asking you questions that you don't know the answer to, you know, hopefully you'll then look to upgrade your skills, look to you know, become more standards compliant, or be like, you know what, this is just getting too complicated. I'm going to get out of this industry, and then you know the industry gets better uh, overall. So that was kind of the idea was to, to do an end run around the people that we haven't been able to to traditionally reach uh, through standards advocacy um, to actually go to the people who are paying those folks and try and educate them. Well, it's got to suck to drop a few thousand dollars on a website only to find it won't run on a phone at all. Exactly, exactly, and so. You know, trying to educate them as to how to better use their money, and then you know, the, it's the power of the wallet, I guess, and and hopefully trying to uh, to continue to foster the improvement of the web overall um, via small businesses. And I and I don't want to spend the whole a whole hour on web standards, but do you feel like we've fought back from the fragmentation from the different vendors? Are are we going to be okay? Um. I still have debates on this um, internally and, and externally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think that overall we have we have companies that are starting to compete more on browser features and less so on you know standards. Basically, mm-hmm. standard support should be a given at this point. Um, but there are definitely things that are concerning me. I read a blog post the other day about the um, the concerns I have around Opera's decision to adopt WebKit as its uh, rendering engine. Yeah. Uh, and to me, it's, you know, I think WebKit's good. I don't think it's a panacea by any means. It's definitely got some serious long-standing issues, especially in the accessibility arena. Um, and it has its own fragmentation. Um, APK, Peter Paul Koch, has, has written a ton about, you know, how there is no one WebKit. There's certainly no one WebKit on mobile, but everybody seems to be of this, this mindset that because, you know, BlackBerry and Nokia and... Um, you know, all the Android stuff and iOS devices, these are all running versions of WebKit, you know, that, that we're in a better place, but we're really not because the different implementers can pick and choose what features they want to implement. You've got, you know, Apple, for instance, they, if you do a JavaScript feature test to find out whether HTML5 uh, form validation is available, JavaScript will tell you that it is. And, and in fact, it is available as a JavaScript API. You can tell that a that a field is invalid. Um, but iOS and desktop versions of Safari do not actually block the form from being submitted if a required field isn't filled out. So it, it knows in the API that it's not a valid form, but right. it'll submit it anyway. So it, the browser lies. And, and this sort of stuff happens all the time. Um, so I'm somewhat concerned that, you know, we're, we're seeing fragmentation in what should be a, a fairly consistent place. Um, and kind of doubly as a concern for me in, in that is that, you know, there's supposed to be two interoperable implementations of any uh, proposed property or new HTML element or what have you uh, before it's considered a standard um, or a recommendation as part of the spec for HTML, CSS, etc. Um, and with Opera now being the, uh, being on WebKit as well, um, I believe that WebKit is across the board considered to be one implementation, whether it's on in multiple browsers or in you know WebKit itself. Um, so now you're down to three rendering engines. So you have to get two of those in order for something to become a standard. And I don't know what the effect that is going to have it is on the uh, the standard process. Yeah, the, the lack of diversity is a huge deal. Yeah, it is. It is, and I mean, there. If you go through the the bugs on on the WebKit bug tracker and stuff. Um, you'll see there are some fairly serious ones, especially dealing with focus and dealing with accessibility, and um, and they just haven't been tackled. And my my hope is, you know, in, in in an idealistic world, you know, I'd love to see Opera step up and be like, you know, we're we're taking on WebKit, but we're also bringing to the table a lot of um, bug fixes that we're planning on doing, and that that we're going to actively uh, participate in the upkeep of this, but, you know, the, the flip side of the coin or, or my, my devil's advocate in my head is, oh, you know, we're buying into this WebKit thing so that we don't have to have staff actually worrying about the rendering engine end of things and we can focus on, you know, the Chrome. And, you know, all, all will be well because the web, WebKit will take care of itself. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's a safe assumption. 
The bigger issue that I've been looking at on this is the whole CSS vendor prefix stuff, where people are just giving up and saying, I'm just going to use WebKit right, as the CSS prefix and, and not testing the other rendering engines and just... I'm really unhappy with the situation with the vendor prefixes. What is the situation with the vendor prefixes? Laziness. <laughs> You're exactly right. It is. They, I mean, it, there was a good idea that, okay, everybody's got a slightly different way of implementing gradients. So we'll let them all go in, but they'll be prefixed with WebKit or, or now I'm trying to think of the other ones. We, uh, WebKit or Moz or MS. And right. so, you know, each of the different linear gradients can be implemented. You can try them. Different flavors. Yeah. Well, it, the concept was to, to allow for browsers to actually implement experimental features and to play with those, ex, those experimental features and actually see how they work. You know, kind of, kind of like I was talking earlier about, about having a sandbox to play in. Um, but a lot of people, you know, it's the same story of what happened when IE6 sat on the shelf for so long. People assumed that that was the way it was and that, you know, IE6, because it didn't change for 10 years, was, you know, became a de facto standard, um, you know, for better or worse. At the time when IE6 came out, it was a great browser, but 10 years later, it was pretty atrocious. Um, and the, the same thing has happened in the, the vendor prefix world. And so, you know, you had so many people who would implement WebKit border radius, thinking that that was actually the property rather than border radius, and you know they weren't bothering to do Moz border radius or O border radius or or what have you, and then you know you essentially end up with all these sites where people are are complaining to a particular browser vendor because oh your site your or your browser doesn't render the site properly, and it's not the the browser maker's fault. Um, you know they have support for a particular you know a particular vendor prefix that that they're required to use um, by you know as dictated by the spec and so they've they've stuck to that and they're trying to do it the right way and you know it's just lazy developers who don't actually want to use all of the properties that they should be doing to to get that sort of um, cross browser compatibility when you're dealing with an experimental feature. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. part of part of the contract of using an experimental feature is that feature is subject to change and that feature is only limited to that one browser in that particular instance. I mean, if you look back to the, the history of border radius, which is probably the, the worst offender of all of these, um, the the implementation of Mozilla in terms of the, the individual border radii, if you wanted to set those, um, was very different than what ended up becoming the standard sense of, you know, border top right radius, border top left radius. Um, Mozilla had border hyphen radius hyphen top left, where top left was one word. So, you know, there were all these, these sort of minuscule differences in terms of the way the spec was implemented or, or in terms of the way that the experimental properties were being implemented in these browsers um, that really did require you to pay attention to a lot of that stuff. Um, and so that was actually the other the other kind of nice thing that uh, Extender as a library provided for me is I was actually able to write extensions that let you just write border radius and then JavaScript would figure out if it needed to write a, a vendor specific version and and could even pay attention to the nuance of things like how border radius in Mozilla was different than border radius in WebKit. Hmm. Uh, so it was kind of kind of nice in that way. What kind of grade would you give uh, IE10? In terms of standards, I think it's pretty fabulous, honestly. I mean, I, I know there are people that that love to continually bash Microsoft, um, simply I think because they've been doing it for so many years. But um, I mean, I think IE10 is great. I think IE9 is pretty fantastic as well. I mean, I I go to do um, you know a, a quick sanity check of sites that we're building now in IE9 and. I rarely see anything that we have to change. Certainly not on the the JavaScript end, and it's very rare that we have to do anything specific for IE in terms of the uh, the CSS end of things either. And and we do use a lot of CSS three, hmm. so I think it's great, and I think it's it's only getting better. Yeah, we live in interesting times, don't we? Oh yeah. Well, it's certainly more interesting than it was, you know, two or three years ago. It's kind of getting boring, but. <laughs> This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? 
I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the tablet show. Well, I always thought that the whole WebSocket debacle with Google oh, made man. it clear we shouldn't be putting experimental features in production browsers. They should be a separate download so that real experimenters work with them. And the WebSocket thing was there was a security uh, vulnerability. Where, and so they yanked it, which yeah. was the right thing to do. But people were building apps on it. Right. And suddenly it broke. Right. Mm-hmm. Oops. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the uh, one of the perils of living on the bleeding edge. I, I mean, so. we were... Yeah, I mean, that's why they call it the bleeding edge, right? Well, I, I mean, I can lay some blame on Google in the sense that they put stuff in forever beta. And so the fact that they called it a beta that time and then actually did something beta-ish in it <laughs> upset everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, they do have the whole flag set up, which I think is pretty good. I mean, it, it definitely helps to be able to turn on and off certain experimental features. Um, but, I mean, I, I use Chrome. I'll, I'll say that. That's, that's my primary browser now. But, man... Chrome drives me nuts because there are so many times when they have just a, a really strange bug. Like we were working on this Chrome app and we were using, we were using a font from Google's font storage. Um, and we were implementing it with ligatures and any word that had a Q in it would disappear. <laughs> and this would only happen or, or it would happen in every version of Chrome except for the Linux version because somebody had fixed it there, but it never made it, you know, it hadn't made it into the, the versions for Windows or for Mac. And, wow. you know, it's little stuff like that. And I, I cannot tell you the number of regressions that we see that because it's, it's a transparent upgrade, um, you know, a regression will sneak in and somebody will be like, this was working yesterday and now it's not. And then, and a lot of times I end up saying for our clients, you know, Google just issued a release. Like I, I managed on that Chrome app version to actually break my my auto updater on Chrome, so mine won't automatically update. So I I keep individual versions of Chrome, and I can go back and say, okay, you know, in, in Chrome 23 this was working perfectly, in Chrome 25 they broke it. So you know, let's wait another version or two and see if this is something that we're actually going to have to address, or if it's just something that somebody screwed something up and you know they they just haven't figured it out yet. Um, and we'll file the bug for the, the, um, regression and such, but it does happen a lot. One of the, the ones we saw in the newest version, um, if you resize the browser, uh, at least in the Mac version, this is the, there, there are three of us on our, our dev team that have been experiencing this, but if you resize the browser, the whole page gets fuzzy and, you know, it, it you literally have to open a new tab to get it to come crystal clear again. Wow. It's just really strange stuff like that. So on one hand, you've got Google and Chrome updating so often with, you know, sort of risky uh, updates at times. And then you've got the WebKit side, which is a fragmented because there's lots of different people are running it, but also doesn't seem to be addressing issues nearly as fast. Correct. And I don't want to say Microsoft gets a free pass here, too. They got their own issues, but... You know, they started this by basically disbanding the IE team way back when, and now it's back together, and it's a pretty good team. Mm. That's an awesome team. It's a better browser today. Oh yeah. Well, what do you th- do? You think that um, things like CoffeeScript and TypeScript have legs and have uh, y- you know possibility of of having an impact in the JavaScript world? Um, I honestly don't feel like I'm I'm really equipped to comment on that. I, I have not experimented with either of them. I'm a fan of writing JavaScript and I'm a fan of JavaScript the way that it is. Yeah. Um, I'm not, 
I don't know. I, I haven't really looked at Dart much. I haven't looked at some of these other, these other frameworks for writing JavaScript because frankly, I like JavaScript the way it is. And, sure. you know, I, I don't have anything that I can't write in native JavaScript or in, you know, jQuery or something like that mm. that I really feel like I need to, to resort to something like CoffeeScript. That said, you know, I, I'm definitely interested in, Node and, you know, doing, doing JavaScript on the back end. And I know that, you know, there are, there are some very useful frameworks that can be used both client side and server side for writing JavaScript like that. And, you know, I'm, I certainly wouldn't rule out the possibility that I'd want to start playing with some of the other kind of, I don't know, more abstracted, um, JavaScript frameworks. It kind of seems to me that we're, we're sort of heading there. You know, the JavaScript is becoming the sort of the C of, uh, you know, of the web. Where whereas we're getting more and more abstract languages and tools to 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 write JavaScript, especially you know in in your field like adaptive web design, there's the uh, you know it, people are going to get into this maybe shall we call them meta developers I don't know but you know sort of designers uh, crossing the line of programming JavaScript. Yeah, certainly. I think it's always good to have more opinions and more thoughts and more people kind of contributing to the overall um, wealth of knowledge that we have as a as an industry because you know we are such a young industry in the the grand scheme of things. Um, so you know, I'm I'm definitely in in favor of having more opinions and thoughts and and such coming together as long as as long as everybody's respectful of each other's opinions and you know we can kind of use that as a, a means to grow. But I I really sure. hate the you know, I, I hate seeing posts. There was one the other day. I'm forgetting who it was by, but it, he, was, he basically said, I'm, you know, I'm done with the web. This, you know, this fragmentation is, is stupid. I can't remember if he was, I want to say it was somebody who was part of Sprout Core or one of those. Mm-hmm. And it was basically like, we solved all of these issues years ago. And I don't know why the, the web just can't get with the program and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I'm done with the web. But I was like, that's kind of, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that, that that's the best thing. Well, this, certainly the web is is done with him too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Goes both ways, doesn't it? Yep. Um, then you know, at the, the same time, there was another. There was actually a really thoughtful post. Uh, I'm trying to remember who it was who did it, um, but it was basically, you know, are we essentially um, painting ourselves into a corner in terms of what it is that we're um, you know, our use of things like SAS and I think, you know, by extension, CoffeeScript and other, other sorts of tools like that that are, are made to, uh, help us become more efficient in terms of what we're writing. Um, but at the same time, do abstract us from, from the core of what it is that we're actually writing, which is CSS or JavaScript. Right. Um, and make it less, um, possible for us to share ideas because we don't necessarily all ascribed to the same preprocessor. Um, it, this is Scott Kellum, actually, who, who did this. He said the post is called Specializing, Specializing Yourself into a Corner. Um, and he was talking about how much he, he loves SAS, and I, I have to agree with him. We started using it about, about two years ago and have definitely gone whole hog into SAS and Compass development. But from the standpoint of also being an educator and, you know, there, I have to, I have to kind of remember that, you know, not everyone is a SaaS developer. And so when creating tools, you know, if I want to demonstrate something specifically for the purposes of showing how you would do something in SaaS and how that can make writing your, your CSS easier, it's okay to use, you know, SaaS or Compass or whatever. But if I'm just, you know, sharing code with somebody, it's much better for me to, to demonstrate a, a concept in CSS in actual CSS rather than so oh, this is how you would write it in SAS and then assume that, that they just know what SAS, you know, what to do with SAS and how to get it installed and how to, how to run that. And I feel the same thing about, you know, CoffeeScript or, or Dart or, you know, whatever it is that you're using to, you know, make writing JavaScript quote unquote easier. Um, and then compiling it down to JavaScript that you never really want to look at. Can you just define SAS? Is that syntactically awesome style sheets? That's in fact what it is. And it's a, a uh, preprocessor for CSS rules and it lets you write in a more efficient way. You can create things like mix-ins and variables and, and all kind of the things that us programming geeks want to be able to have in, in CSS but don't currently have. Um, though that may be coming in the spec in the future. Mm. Um, but 
you know, there, for instance, you know, one, one place where SAS really helped out a lot is I was, I was building the CSS to create a, a framework for a timeline, basically. And the timeline needed to be able to be, uh, output by the server side. In this case, it was a, a Drupal backend. Um, and there basically needed to be placeholders for each of the different locations along the timeline. And rather than having to write out each of those by hand, I could use SAS and do a couple of loops in order to create that stuff dynamically and make it much easier for me to author and maintain consistency because if the, the client decides they want to adjust the look and feel, they want to, they want to make the increments, you know, the equivalent of 15 pixels wide instead of 10 pixels wide, I can change that in one variable and it'll just rewrite out all of the rules that are required for the, the creation of that, mm-hmm. that timeline. So it was a tremendous savings and I got to, you know, use actual math knowledge instead of just writing over and over repetitious right. CSS and just incrementing things in my head. Um, so, it, you know, there are definitely some real benefits to using uh, compilers like SAS or less is another one. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's definite uses for those and ways that they can improve our, our lives. And I'm sure it's the same way on the, the JavaScript end. Um, but we do have to be conscious about how we go about sharing um, the knowledge that, that we gain and the, the concepts to make sure that we are all speaking the same language. Because as we as we start to see more and more of these these tools cropping up, and there are a ton of them out there, like you know, not everyone speaks the same thing. You know, you've got Compass, you've got Power, you've got Stylus, you've got SAS, Less, you know, all this sort of stuff, and um, you know, we just we can't communicate if we're all speaking different languages. Hmm. Aaron, I, I wanted to dig a bit into your book, Adaptive Web Design. I, I, we've addressed the idea of responsive web design, you know, building a page that works on different sizes of screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you talk about progressive enhancement. Can you sort of set the frame for us? What is the difference here? Progressive enhancement is more of a, a philosophy, a philosophical approach to web design. So um, the idea is that you you build from a core of what is the you know the necessary task for a user on this page? You know what is the necessary content on this page in order to complete this task, um, and so on and so forth. And the task could be simply you know disseminating information to a user or collecting information from a user or something like that. But then you you build up the experience based on the capabilities of the device. So you know to go all the way back to the very beginning, the the thing that every browser supports is text and HTTP because HTTP is what makes the web work. So forms that actually submit to a real endpoint and spit back a real page as the result, um, you know, links that actually take you somewhere, uh, those sorts of, of fundamentals and well-written copy that's actually easy to follow. Um, and then on top of that, we can start to add on things like uh, markup that enhances the meaning of the page through use of semantics. So denoting this particular section of a page is, or, or this particular grouping of, of sentences as a paragraph where this is a heading um, and, and the various heading hierarchies where this is a section of a page or this is an article. Um, through that, we provide more meaning to the document and, and make it more digestible to the user as well as repurposeful to, to other um, technologies and such. Um, and I feel like microformats fall into that as well yeah. um, in classes to be able to enhance the meaning of the page, to be able to allow somebody to, to subscribe to HTML pages as though they're an iCal feed or an RSS feed, um, to allow people to export contact information or calendar events from an HTML page. All of that's really awesome stuff and very easy to implement and is an enhancement to the experience for a user. And then you have additional layers that, that come on. So you've got CSS and you have, you have varying levels of, of CSS support. Um, but you're, you're still growing the experience based on the capabilities of the, the device or the browser that the, the user is in. So if a user supports, uh, just normal uh, colors, traditional RGB values or hex values, you can give them that and then you can supply them with, uh, an RGBA value, let's say. So they've got alpha transparency in there. And if, the browser supports the alpha transparency, it gets that, otherwise it falls back to the normal color. So again, just kind of providing layers and layers of support all the way up through how you're implementing JavaScript and, and making sure your, your JavaScripts are decoupled so that you can have 
kind of an a la carte experience. Every user may have a slightly different experience, but it's a positive experience. Um, the analogy I use a lot is a peanut M&M um, because a peanut M&M starts with a peanut, which is a you know perfectly valid snack for anybody who doesn't have a peanut allergy. Um, but you wrap that in chocolate and you've got you know, what we in America call the goober or just a chocolate-covered peanut, which I don't think anyone would argue is, a, is an enhancement to the peanut. It makes it a better, a better experience, a more enjoyable snack. And then you add the candy shell to it to make it a peanut M&M, and it's you know, pretty friggin' awesome. <laughs> well said, sir. Yep. To me, it's, it's a continuum. It's a, it, the experience gets better, but no, none of those experiences is a bad experience. They're all a positive experience. And I think that's what we should really strive to have. Um, and, and there's been, you know, definitely some tension between progressive enhancement as a guiding philosophy and the concept of graceful degradation, which is kind of a, a, a long time, um, engineering concept, uh, which is, you know, on, on older system things, you know, fall apart, but fall apart in an okay way. Um, some people don't want stuff to fall apart at all. So they'll, they'll actively block certain browsers that they know can't can't use their site, which I think is, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of rude. And at the same time, um, it's, again, kind of lazy because um, you can provide a good experience. It may not be the hi-fi experience that you want to provide to, you know, someone who's using the latest version of Chrome, but you can still provide a good experience to those users, you know, make sure people have access to their bank accounts, for instance, or um, can at least read some basic information about uh, about your product. Um so where all this kind of comes together with responsive web design is, to me, responsive web design is a is a perfect embodiment of the progressive enhancement mindset, especially if taken from a mobile mobile first perspective. Right. Um, because a lot of mobile devices are kind of the the poor man's browser at this point. You have all of these old web devices and stuff like that. Um, and so if you build from a mobile mobile first perspective using responsive web design, you are adapting the content to a variety of, of containers essentially and from a at least a design and aesthetic point of view um you're enhancing the experience um to me progressive enhancement and and you know adaptive web design being kind of a a I don't know, sexier term for that because progressive enhancement sounds kind of clinical and boring um you know the the adaptive web design philosophy or the progressive enhancement philosophy is a little bit larger than that in that it takes into account experience of uh, JavaScript and how we author our HTML. It's not just about media queries and flexible grids and fluid media. Um, you know, it, it takes into account more of a holistic approach to the, uh, the build of a website. But this does seem like a very brownfield technology that I can take on. It's easy. I think it's easy to do responsive web design. Like the demos are awesome. And if you're doing greenfield, start from scratch, that's something to do. For me, the tough one is, okay, you've got this site full of tables and all this awfulness and, you know, early implementations of CSS. And now you're trying to get it up to standard. And now right. I, I find that really challenging. Like, where do I start to start fixing this site? Um, I, you know, it depends on the project, certainly. Um, and, and I would say, you know, it's not, it's not just the challenge of responsive web design that really, you know, puts that requirement on you. I think just wanting to bring a site up to date period is, is a challenge if you're, depending on how much legacy stuff you're dealing with. Um, the, uh, the BBC actually had a really interesting take on this in that they had a mobile website and then they had their, you know, traditional desktop website. And so what they began to do was actually take the mobile website and move that kind of section by section in, in manageable chunks excuse me, over to a um, over to a responsive framework so that they could do it almost flying under the radar. So it, it wasn't like they were redesigning the entire site in one go and you know doing it all sort of live with the, the desktop site, which would take forever. Um, and they were able to accomplish that because they were just, just focusing on the mobile product, which is mostly used by mobile devices. And therefore, probably wouldn't be seen on all that many desktop screens. So it gave them the opportunity to experiment and to to work sort of bit by bit to do the conversion and not have to to you know take on a large chunk of a project all at once. They could do it kind of piecemeal. Um, and I think that's a really wise way to go, especially for sites that have you know, a lot of of legacy content. Sure. Obviously, the better your CMS is, the, the more modular that is in terms of 
how you've stored your content. And the, the more discrete those chunks are, the easier time you're going to have. If you've got all that table-based markup in your CMS, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. So, but, but he starts off, if you have a CMS... Oh, yeah, I guess that's true, too. Uh, I guess there's uh, some hope that that CMS has contained your real content in a form that is independent of the right. format and structure. Exactly. But it's not necessarily true. And, you know, no. sometimes it's just text in paragraph tags on pages. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that the whole move to a CMS period is, is a, a large endeavor for a lot of companies. Sure. And, uh, but I mean, once, once you get there, the benefits are, are huge. I mean, it's just like the, the separation of, uh, markup from presentational code and CSS from JavaScript code. The benefits of separating your actual content from the application logic and the actual uh, rendering of the the page, you know, has has a lot of benefits. You know, that's the the whole MVC concept, and and that's huge. And there's there's a lot of corollaries between you know web web standards approaches and MVC approaches. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it just sort of seems like you got to take this on one stage at a time. It almost feels like the, the double whammy is especially if you're new to the techniques. Like as a web developer, if I feel like I want to go off and build a project using the new standards from scratch a few times before I would try and do retrofits, I just feel like I go down the wrong paths with retrofits. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, another thing that you can do is is in the short term you can experiment with a non-mobile first uh responsive approach where you're you're starting to do more of the max width media queries because you can just tap you know put those on top of your existing site and you if you are stuck in table layouts you can do things like set all table cells to display block or you know various various other things like that to essentially unspool tables um so you know there are there are some things that you can do in that arena but you could start off with doing kind of the desktop first approach. And then once you're starting to feel comfortable with how you're adapting your content across a variety of devices, then you can say, okay, we've got, we've got this set up. Let's flip it on its head now and go mobile first. And that's, you know, that becomes easier because you've already sort of laid the groundwork for that. And I am feeling like this is not optional anymore. Mobile is not a small portion of the web anymore. Not at all. You know, that I think it's a, it is just time next year, maybe, where there'll be more web traffic from mobile than there will be from desktop. And I'm also thinking device to device using web technology and services uh, through mobile devices. It's just, you know, with SignalR and things, it's just getting ridiculous. Yeah. It's becoming development, not web development. Yeah. With its own set of challenges. Yeah, exactly. Do you develop against a browser or not? I think it's the only question you have. Right. Right. Yeah. So hybrid apps versus native apps versus web apps is something we talk about a lot on the show and everybody seems to have their own opinion and um, the technologies are pretty robust on, on every side. We opted for .NET Rocks to make native apps for iPhone, for Android and for Windows phone, but not everybody does that. What's your, uh, what's your opinion about that? Um, I think it's all about finding the right tool for the job. I mean, I think there there are definitely certain instances where it makes sense to build a native app. Um, you know, there are certain instances where it makes sense to have a hybrid app, and there are certain instances where it makes sense to have a fully web-based app. Um, I personally feel like the being able to create consistent experiences across different uh, facts is always the, the most important thing. So making sure that, you know, not only does your Android app feel like an Android app, but it also is is consistent with the interaction models that you create for your iOS app or, you know, for your, your web-based uh, product as well. Since I think it's, I don't know, I think it's foolish to put all of your eggs just in, you know, the iOS, the, the Android or the, the Windows market as the only way of, of getting your content out there. That's one, one thing I thought was kind of, sad about Instagram at the beginning was that you you really couldn't uh, you know go and browse your friends timelines and stuff like that on the web you were fully locked into to being able to do it on the phone um, I think you really kind of limit yourself in terms of your your market reach and your your potential impact 
And I think there are certain instances where, let's say with, with login, for instance, you want to be able to have the most secure login possible um, and you want to be able to do security upgrades to that login. Let's say you, you know, you've got a particularly you know, an app that needs to be super secure and you're currently using and you're doing it completely native and you're using XML RPC to manage the, the login procedures. Um, if you need to roll out a new security upgrade, you have to not only upgrade the XML RPC in order to provide a, a gateway for that new piece of security, but you then need to update each of the individual instances of that being used in an app. So you have to update your Android app, you have to update your iOS app, you have to update your Windows app, you have to get those into the the marketplaces, get them through approval process, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then you have to hope your users update uh, or else they don't get to take advantage of that. Whereas if you were to, let's say, make your uh, login be web-based for your native app and just place it inside of a wrapper, you can immediately roll out new security measures with without having to force uh, an upgrade to uh, each of the individual apps. So I think there, there are certain instances where it's much more efficient to jump to a single source of, you know, of performing an action rather than having to, to resort to natively implemented versions of, of each of those. Yeah, well said. And, you know, at the end of the show, we barely have time to get into a whole lot more of those, but um, that that's sort of what our, our show's focus has been a lot on, you know, what, what should I use when and for what reason? Certainly no one right way. There isn't. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about doing your research and, and not, not kind of putting on blinders, you know, saying, oh, I only know PHP, so I'm only going to write in PHP or, or yeah. oh, I only, you know, know how to do X. So that's all I'm going to do because I don't want to grow as a developer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm scared to learn new things. And, you know, we all have deadlines and we all, you know, have needs to get things done in a, a reasonable amount of time. But at the same time, it's, it's so important to find that right tool for the job. And there may be three right tools for the job and then it's which one you're more comfortable with. But um, it's always important to take into account the, the circumstances and how something is going to be used because it ends up saving you so much time down the road. Yeah, well said. Well, it's about all the time we have. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Aaron. Yep, it's been nice talking to you as well. All right, and we'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much, but it means a lot. Just try